You're listening to the podcast of Wind River Community Church, located in Lander, Wyoming, featuring sermons by Pastor Ken Simon. For more information on us, please visit windriverchurch.com. We are in the book of Ephesians, but let me just kind of give you a little bit of a, a start to this this morning, because um, in every one of us, as we, when we're born and then we start to move into just being little kids that crawl on the ground, there's an event that takes place in our life that we cannot change, nor would we know how to if we actually knew how to do it. Because when, when we have these responses that we give from a, a wee little baby, when the, the little baby looks up at mom and dad and in the arms and they, they do this thing with their face, all of a sudden, the parents' eyes get as big as saucers, and they get this big smile on their face, and the baby goes like, ah, I did something that made them like me. I'm going to do it again. And they do it, and then they poop their pants, and you go, ooh. And, you know, then there's a problem, and it goes like, but I can't help it, right? And that's the process that we go through is that even as kids get bigger, as they're two, three years old, they, they'll do things that are kind of funny, and we laugh at them. And, and when we laugh at them, they respond back, and they'll do it again. And they'll do it again and again and again. And pretty soon, we're tired of them doing it again and again and again. But they're looking for a response from us. And that response, those, those little things that trigger in us to get the response of acceptance, of love, of significance... We learn that pattern from when we're children, and we keep carrying it on as we keep growing. When you get into elementary school, it's been said that fourth grade is the most important year of your life in school because fourth grade determines who you're going to be. What I mean by that is, for instance, my friend Kevin Nickel, he and I were accountability partners up in Canada for 15 years. And he could remember distinctly in his mind the day that he was in class and the teacher said something to him and he responded in a smart aleck kind of a way. The whole class laughed and the teacher frowned. And because the whole class laughed, Kevin thought to himself, I can make people laugh. And so he became the class clown because he got the response from his peers that he was longing for acceptance and love. And it made him feel significant. And, and, but regardless of how the teacher responded, he was, he was willing to, to take whatever the teacher would give to him as punishment for him being a smart alley. We carry that all the way into high school because all of a sudden now we're looking for not so much the, the response of our teachers, but more the response of our peers. And so people will, will try to do whatever they can to fit in with the group of peers with whom they are hanging out. They will, they will do bad things to be accepted. They'll do good things to be accepted. Uh, one of the big things is for students who find school easy, I mean, by that, they, they don't struggle with the subjects at hand. And particularly, they do well and they get A's. But they, they respond to the accolade of their academic progress. And so they continue to work hard to get A's because that's where they find their acceptance, their love, and their significance is through their uh, academia. We're trained to do that right from the get-go. We do it with our spouses. 
We know the things that are going to bring from them, particularly like yesterday, if all of you who are married uh, were handing out valentines and doing all the right things, you probably got the, the response you wanted. I got zero response yesterday. I was a bad boy. I didn't forget, I just, well, I was lazy, it was bad. But she didn't, she didn't, she's, she's the most gracious woman on the planet. But I'm just saying that we are trained this way from birth to, to do things that we feel are going to bring us acceptance, love, significance, all those things that we desire. We have this longing in our heart to be accepted, to be loved. We want to feel significant to other people. And it, it just plays itself out. You know what I'm talking about. You know the times that you have felt insignificant, unloved, and unaccepted. And you will either turn away from those relationships or you will change your behavior to bring that relationship back to the place where you're feeling that acceptance, love, and significance again. The problem is, is we carry that same idea with us when we step into relationship with God. We think that there are things that we have to do in order for God to love us. We have to read our Bible all the time, and we have to be praying all the time, and we have to do all these good deeds, and we have to do all these nice things for other people, and we have to give money to the church so that God sees what we're doing. And after we've done all that, we look at God and we say, that's it, that's what I've got, is it good enough? And God always responds, no. Because there's nothing that we can do that's good enough to earn God's love and acceptance. We don't find our significance through what we do for God. That's not where he's calling us. And that's what brings us now to Ephesians 2, where we're going to be at this morning. And so, if you want to turn in your Bibles, you can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 2. And we're going to start with verse 8. These, these verses, these three verses, verses 8, 9, and 10, I think are the most significant verses in the, in the life of a believer if we really get to the place where we understand the power of what Paul is saying in regards to our life with God. When we get that, it will absolutely change the way we see ourselves, the way we see others, and our relationship with Christ. Absolutely, will, it, it's, it is earth-moving information. And so it says, For by grace are we saved. Through faith. I'm stopping right there. Because I could preach probably two sermons on this all by itself. But I'm not going to. Relax. I'm just going to spend a little bit of time talking about this. Because this is such a simple sentence that Paul has laid out for us. But yet, it's, it carries such profound weight in our lives for how we see ourselves and how we see God. The first thing we need to understand is grace. And grace is... Uh, where God steps in and gives us undeserved blessings freely bestowed on us. It's at the heart of our theology about God and at the heart of our experience with Christ. It's, it's so highly important for, for us to understand what grace looks like that if we miss this, we're not, going to, we're not going to move along down our spiritual journey the way that God intended for us to go. It's really important. If you have your Bible and you have a pen with you, you should just circle that word grace. 
Because it's that important for our lives and for our relationship with Christ. Grace is the process by which God redeems, sanctifies, and glorifies his people. It is not only that he saves us, but also transforms and revitalizes those whose lives were previously broken and meaningless. Before we step into grace with Christ, we might have what what the world would say a very successful life. We might be making lots of money. We might have lots of friends. We might have all the stuff around us that we would look at and say is successful. But yet there's this part of us in our heart that is missing something and it aches for something. And we we strive to get it. We strive hard to find out what it is. And so we, we try to do all these wonderful and great and mighty things. We'll sign up to go on a mission trip. We'll go build wells in Africa. We'll go work with with the AIDS victims in Africa. We'll go to South America and feed the hungry and take care of orphans. We will do all those things to try to appease that hunger and that desire that's in our heart. You know what the Bible tells us is that there's no, no thing, no one event, no act that we can do that is going to fill that gap that God can only fill. And there's nothing that we can do to earn it. There's no notorious work that we can do that's going to do, be enough for God to look at us and go, you finally got there. You finally have come to the place. You finally realize what it is that, that you needed. It is only by the grace of God. But, you know, the problem is, is that we're usually on one or two sides of the coin when it comes to grace. We spend our life seeking self-actualization, some act or fact that will give us significant understanding. And there are some of us who have a lot of self-confidence. And so it's really hard for us to understand the need to be stripped of all that we have earned and valued in our lives. We don't think we really need God. Because after all, look what I've accomplished on my own. What can God do for me that I haven't already done for myself? And then on the other side of that coin are those who lack self-confidence. And we take it to a different level. We take it to the level of demeaning ourselves. And we say something like, I've done such bad things that there's no way God could ever love me. There's no way God could ever forgive me. How many times have you ever heard somebody say, well, if I were to go to church, lightning would strike and I'd be dead. Because that's the view that they have of God. That God has this view that they are so rotten and so sinful and beyond any hope of rescuing, of redeeming, of saving, that that they are just that wicked that if they ever walked into a church, like the church building is where God lives, he's going to strike lightning down and kill them. He's not going to do that. He's not going to burn up a perfectly good building. He'll wait till he get outside. I mean, come on. God's not stupid, okay? And he doesn't do that anyway because there's something that has withheld his wrath from people like me who deserve absolutely all of God's wrath. And the thing that has prevented God God from pouring his wrath out on my life and your life, by the way, because you're in the same boat with one oar in the water going nowhere, The thing that has prevented that is the cross of Christ. 
because his blood was shed on that, and that blood shed on the cross is what holds God's wrath back from being poured out on all of mankind. It holds it back. It, it keeps it at bay. Because that was, that was the price that had to be paid. There had, somebody had to pay the price. But what God says is you can't earn that blood of Christ to cover you. You just have to take it. It's my grace. I'm giving it to you freely. And so what grace does is it moves us towards worship and true hum- humility. But in all of this grace, the thing that is really important for us to get our a handle on and understand is that all of the grace is initiated only by God. You don't initiate any part of it. You might think, I cried out to God and He heard me. He heard my cry, then He came and met me. God was already there when you were crying. You couldn't see Him. God was whispering in your ear, You need me. And you couldn't hear it. And then something, some traumatic event, something in your life came along and God said, this is the moment right here, right now, where you need the day of salvation in your life and you will either step into it or you will deny it and walk the other way. But I'm going to tell you, there's nothing you can do to get it except take it because it's a free gift. It's right here for you. And either we step in and we take that grace that God's given to us or we deny it and we walk away from it. When we walk away from it, it's pride. Because we think we, we know better than God. We think we are above God. Or we can deal with things in a better way than God can deal with things. Or else it's self-deprecation if we walk away from it. I'm not good enough. There's nothing I can do. I've got to get myself cleaned up. I've got to make some strides in my spiritual journey with God before God will accept me. But what grace does is it eliminates both of those both pride and self-deprecation, are wiped off the face of the people that are standing there before the throne of God. Because he just gently steps out and he says, here it is, take it, it's all yours. For many, grace is too hard to accept and believe. But there's no act of virtue that can be presented to God to gain acceptance. We have acceptance because of God's initiative of grace to us. It is His work of grace, not our work of acceptance. God made a promise to us of what this grace looks like when we're ready to step into it. One of my favorite verses out of Romans. Romans 10, 9 and 10. No, sorry. It's from Ezekiel. Which is one of my favorite verses in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, what God recognizes about each and every one of us before we step into grace, our heart is hard. It's like a stone. It feels nothing towards God. It has no desire for God. It does nothing for God. But when we recognize and we see the grace that God has for us, what he does is he does open heart surgery. And he takes that heart of stone and he removes it out of us. He takes it and he throws it away. And then he gives us a heart of flesh, one that pumps and beats with desire for the living God to work in our hearts and our lives. And then he puts his spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, with which we are able to live and function in this life called 
a life with Christ, being a disciple of Jesus. He puts that into us, and then we have a new heart, we have a new direction, we have new desires, and we have a new, new reality in our lives with God that we've never experienced before. That's what God does through grace. But as Paul says, it's, it's grace by faith. And this little phrase, by faith, is the inseparable companion of by grace. And together, the two expressions stand in stark contrast to any suggestion of human merit. Faith is usually understood here to denote the human response by which God's salvation is received. If God's grace is on that grounds of salvation, then faith is the way and means by which it is appropriated into our lives. And faith cannot be a meritorious work. It is the response which, re, which receives what has been done for us in Christ. Through faith implies that Jesus is the one to whom faith is directed since he is, explicit, since he is explicit, explicitly its object. Paul is directing our attention to the fact that faith, this faith he's talking about, is a twofold faith. First, it is our saving faith, but only because it is found in Christ's faithfulness. God's gracious salvation comes through Christ's faithfulness. That is, His unflinching obedience to the Father's will. Philippians tells us that Jesus took on the cross, the shame of the cross, but He bore it with joy. In obedience to the Father. You see, everything he did, Jesus did, when he walked on this planet, none of it was by his own initiative. He said, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only speak what he tells me to say. I only act the way that the Father tells me to act. You see, Jesus was in compliance with the Father and he did all that he did. And because of that, that his faithfulness to the Father and following through on the mission that the Father gave him to do is what created the avenue of faith for you and me. That's where we get it from. We don't stir up faith in our hearts. It irritates me when people go, you don't have enough faith. Well, the truth is you don't. But that's not why God's not acting. God's timing is totally different than our timing. What God wants to do is totally different than what I want to have happen. I was telling my friend Jamie here that, that there are things that are happening now in the church that I've been praying for for 12 years. And, and there are things that I have learned in the last year and a half that I wished I would have learned 20 years ago. And I, and I say to God, you know, why has it taken all this time for me to, to figure this out and to get this right and to, to really start to meditate upon these things so that I can grow my relationship and that I can be a better pastor, a better communicator, a better friend, a better husband, and a better father to my kids? And God goes, what? 20 years? In light of eternity? That was 20 years. And I go, Gotcha. You see, we have this different idea of how God should work than the way God really works. God doesn't work according to our time frame or our schedule. He does what he does in his time, and he does it his way. And by the way, you need to know this. His timing and his way are always perfect. Always perfect. We can't get away from that. So, 
it's first it's a saving grace, and second, or saving faith, but secondly, it is a sustaining faith. We don't step into faith and then it's just it's like taking a shower, and then you get out, you dry off, and, and I've got my faith now because I got a shower of grace and faith together, and now I go on my merry little way. No, God tells us that this faith is what's going to sustain us through our life because I'm going to tell you, you are either in the middle of something that's really bad or you're just coming out from something that's been really hard or you're one stupid act away from being in something really difficult. And that's the truth. And and that's why we have to have this sustaining faith because it's that sustaining faith that gets us through the difficult circumstances. And it's that sustaining faith while we're going through the storm that we look around and we go, life is difficult, but in the middle of this, God is faithful because of His sustaining faith in our life that comes from Christ. Now, this grace with which the Father has lavished upon us, then is neither, it neither originates with us nor is dependent upon us. It is conceived by God, initiated by God, provided to us through Christ's faithfulness. This is all possible because grace is purely God's character. It is not possible because of the character or conduct of any one person. Much of what passes for faith in the church today, though, let me say this, is superficial understanding. And it is, by the way, not worth having. This kind of faith that Paul's talking about, it evokes a deep commitment, deep thought, and, and very deep, significant change in our lives. That's what this faith does. This true gift of faith of, that comes through grace from God produces a faith that is worth having because it produces life change. It creates a hunger for a deeper relationship with God. And it it gives us the ability to love others, to love those that we normally wouldn't be attracted to, but because of what God has done in my life, now I know how to love those people. That's the fruit of grace and truth in our lives. And and it's, it's glorious. And it's effective. And when we accept it, It comes through the agency and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And He demonstrates to us what that changed life looks like. So our attitudes, our behavior are to show all the hallmarks of being a new creation. That is what salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ produces in our lives. A new creation. Let's move on. It says here also that this is not of our own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. We've touched on much of that already. But what we really need to understand is why God removes us out of the equation of us having any participation in coming into faith through this grace. There's nothing of it we can do. God's very wise in what he does. Because if we had some part in this, We're so egocentric that we would say something like this. Hey, God, I've decided to give my life to you. It's your lucky day. Now I'm here. Now you can take all these gifts, abilities, skills, all the things that I have that make me up who I am, and you're welcome for me being who I am, and I am here to help you 
grow this little thing, this fledgling little thing, this thing that needs a lot of help. I'm here to infuse all of my manhood into this thing called the church, and we're going to rock it. It's your lucky day, God. You see, that's the attitude that we have in regards to who we are in light of God. And God goes like, you little bug, I'm going to just squish you right now. <laughs> Done. You see, because, because that, that's really what we are. We're just a little bug to God. We, we forget that the psalmist said that we are feel, fearfully and wonderfully made by God. He knit us together in our mother's womb. He knew us before our parents knew us. He perceives our thoughts from afar. Who can know the mind of God? No one can. It's, it's un, unsearchable, unknowable. God has revealed to us in these pages of his love letter to us called the Bible, Holy Scripture. He's revealed to us all we need to know about him. If he revealed, I, I suspect that if he revealed any more of himself than what we have right now in scriptures, it would melt our brains. We just couldn't handle it. We'd go, this is far too wonderful for me. This is just like blowing my mind every day. We would be a drooling mess. You know, like when you go into the dentist and he says, open your mouth, and then you got your mouth open for six hours while he drills all your teeth out of your head. Oh, no, that wasn't you. That was me. I'm sorry. But God wants us out of the equation. He wants us to get out of the way because the whole thing about God's gift of grace to us is it is all about him it's all about his love his tender-heartedness his compassion his understanding of our lives because when he pours out his grace and truth on us and we have nothing to do with it then it holds at bay all of his wrath from pouring out on us and that's such a huge thing for us but we still play a part in all of this. There is a part in this that we need to take into account. We need to understand that when, when we can give the credit to God for what he's doing, it comes from what Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Rome. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth and you believe that Jesus, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For, from, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You understand that passage right there says nothing about us doing any activity. It doesn't say go grab a, a lamb down in the farmer's field, bring it up here, slit its throat, and sprinkle its blood all over the place. That's already been done, and it didn't work. It doesn't say give a ton of money to the needy and the poor. Give all of your, your wealth to those who are, are living in poverty. It doesn't say to come alongside someone and change their tire when it's flat, although that's a good thing to do because sometimes when you do that, you're entertaining angels. So you might want to do it because you might bump into an angel one day. But there's, there's no activity here. It is simply what God says here. It is what happens with inside of this person that is called Ken. When I recognize the lordship of Jesus, and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, and I believe that in my heart, and then I confess it with my mouth. You know, one of the things that, that I got sucked into as a young pastor was getting people to 
to say this little prayer that's printed out on a card. Do you really want to love Jesus? Jesus really loves you. If you don't love Jesus, you're going to hell. So read this card, and if you really mean it, you're a Christian. I vomit when I think of how many times I did that. Because that's not what, that's not what the Bible says. If you notice, in, in the last two, three years, I have not said, hey, if you want to ask Christ into your life, come down here to the front and pray and receive Jesus. Because here's what I believe. This is where God's been teaching me and training me and helping me to have a greater understanding. That if somebody really desires to know Christ, they're going to hear the truth of the message served on a platter of grace. And when they hear that and the Holy Spirit does the work in their lives, they can just do this all on their own. They don't need someone like me to come along and, and go like, yeah, and so I can write it down in my book. What it means is that those people, when they have that desire to know God, they will seek someone out they know that knows Jesus. And they're going to share their heart with them. And they're going to say, what must I do to be saved? And we point back to Romans 10, 9 and 10. And we just say, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. See, we get the wrong idea about confession. We think that being saved is confessing our sin. That that's what the confession is that's going to save you. It's a good practice to get into. But what's going to save you is confessing that Jesus Christ is your Lord. This is where the beginning of being a disciple of Christ, the rubber hits the road. And it's, it's much different than the Christian culture which we find ourselves enamorated with today. We're immersed in this culture, and it's sideline Christianity. It's, uh, you know, and a lot of people call Jesus, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian from... 10 to 11.30 on Sundays. And then the rest of the time, I live like the devil. And that's the culture that we've created. But when we really understand the grace of God, when we really understand it and we step into it through faith, like it says here in Romans, our lives will be so utterly transformed by the power of God that we will be a totally different person. And your spouse, your parents your friends, people that have known you for years are going to go, what happened to you? I heard a story of, by uh, a guy named Kyle Eidelman who had this young kid who was in his 20s who finally really got off of drugs, got his life turned around, and really came into the saving faith of Christ. And he was a disciple of Jesus. He couldn't get enough of learning about the Bible. He couldn't get enough of hanging out with Christian people. He couldn't find enough days or hours in his days to worship Jesus. And, and the boy's mom called Kyle up and said, can you come over and talk to me? And she went to another church in the town. And he thought for sure when he went over to meet with this lady that she was going to say to him, thank you for working with my son. You and your church have turned his life around. He's now living for Jesus. He's, he's fully devoted to him. But what he found from the mom was the opposite. This lady who attended another church said, can you tell him to back off? The Bible says that we are to do all things in moderation. 
that's sad. But that's what we've bred into our culture in the United States. Don't be sold out for Jesus, because that's not being prudent. Well, Jesus never called anybody to be prudent. He actually told you to pick up your cross daily and die to yourself. He actually said, if you want to be my follower, then you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. There's nothing prudent about that. And when you tell people that, they're going like, you're a cult. No, I love Jesus. Let me explain that to you someday. Let's move on. Ephesians 2.10. We have this grace through faith. We recognize that it's not our doing. It's all God's initiative. There's no works that we can do. And then Paul says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. All right, this is a little bit confusing. Not that we're God's workmanship, because we are his creation. He has created us. And when it says here that we are his workmanship, it's referring to a new creation. Our hearts have been recreated. And let me just go, and I'll hit that just for a minute, because it's important to note several things about this verse. First, you're God's workmanship. In the original context and text, it indicates that you are a person of notable excellence to God. You are extremely precious in His sight because He made you who you are. You've heard the old saying, God don't make junk. He made you exactly the way He wanted you to be. Now, there's some refining work he wants to do in your life. He's going to chisel some of those bad spots off and create this sculpture of what he has identified you to be. You're a work in process. Amen to that, right? You don't want to be stuck where you're at. That's not a good place. So we're this workmanship. We're created by God. He loves us. He sees more value in us than we see in ourselves. That's what it means to be his workmanship. The second thing is we're created in Christ. God, our Father, loved you so much that he gave his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you. His love can never grow any greater. It can never diminish. It is always the same. It's infinite. There's nothing you can do to have God say to you, I no longer love you. There's nothing you can do that God's going to go like, wow, that was amazing. I love you more today than I did yesterday. It, it just, you, it doesn't ever diminish. It, it's, it's like you go and you take, you get this cup of water and you take this big drink from it and when you pull it back down from your mouth, it's still full. And you're going like, wow, that was wild. And so you drink some more and you pull it back down and it's still full. And it's this process. And no matter how much you drink out of it, no how much, you could spill it and it's still full and you're going like, I don't get it. That's just craziness to me. That's bizarre. How does God do that? I don't know because he's God and I'm not. But I know he does it. And that's, that's what the infinite love of God is for us. And that's why we're created in Jesus. Your creation in Jesus Christ is actually the recreation. This is what I was going to talk to you about. Because Paul also wrote in another letter to the Corinthians, he said, therefore, anyone who is in Christ is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. In other words, when I step into this faith, 
through grace, in Christ Jesus, the old me is left behind. And I step out, now I'm this new creation of God. I'm this new living example of what God has intended for me to be. And I'm brand spanking new. A problem that we have, though, is that as we walk through life, sometimes we walk in circles, and we circle back around, and we find our old self, and we go like, I like this part about me. And we pick it up, and we take it with us. And the problem is, is that that's the stinky part. And so we're taking this stinking thing with us, and we're walking around pretty soon. We're going, something really stinks around here. And what God is saying is, no, it's, yeah, throw that away. We left that back there, remember? You're a new creation. You've got this whole new life ahead of you that I have, I have laid out for you. It, it is filled with things more than you could ever imagine. And then we come to this whole part where he says that we're to do this in this, these good works that Christ has for us beforehand. Now, this could be confusing because in, in, at the beginning of this, or in verse 9, it says, there aren't any works that we can do to earn God's favor. But now it says, God has all these good works for us to do. So what is it? Is it works or is it not works? Because I'm confused. Do I do works or don't I do works? Well, if you try to do your own works, stop doing that. And you need to start doing God's work. So what does God's work look like? Well, God's work is totally different than the work that we think about. Because His work, it, it takes the supernatural indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives to produce the work that God wants us to do. We can't do it in the flesh. We can't do it on our own. We are incapable of doing God's good works by the flesh. It doesn't work. It's impossible to do. So what are those good works that God has for us? And by the way, he tells us to walk in these good works that he has for us. And it's not that God wants us to get busy doing stuff just for the sake of being busy. God doesn't want us to just be busy people for the sake of being busy because when we get busy in religious activity, what we do is we turn around and we go, hey, is this good enough yet, God? Because I'm really busy down here. And God's going, you got the wrong idea, son. That's the wrong picture. You've got the wrong path you're going on. I don't want you busy for the sake of being busy. I want you busy in the things that I've laid out long before you were ever recreated. Long before the foundations of the world, God had that thought in mind about you and the things he wanted you to do. Now, I'm going to give you a hint on some of those things because what God does, these good deeds that we're supposed to step into and follow through with, they flow from a heart of love for God. No other reason. It's because I love God that I'm going to do these good deeds, these things that God has laid out for me. It's because God has saved me and he loves me and has provided for me. I love him back. Therefore, as I see these good works he has before me, I step into him with a joyful heart. And, and David, King David out of the Old Testament, he wrote a song about it. And we sing it every now and then. It says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast not away from me, me away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Here's, here's the good works. Here they come. Hang on to your britches because this is what God's calling you to do in good works. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And here we go again. Here's, here's the good works. 
and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Oh, what else does God want us to do as good works? Oh, oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Those are the good works that God had laid out long before us. It's an outline of what he wants. You fill in the blanks you, in, in your unique way. Because here's what he goes on to say. You will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That is really the good works that God's calling us to. It, 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 you know, we do that because when, when I understand my relationship with God, when I understand it's all on His initiative, it's nothing to do with me, it's all for His glory and nothing for my praise, it's all for the worthiness of who He is and nothing for the worthlessness, worthlessness of who I am, then I get it. Then I see the person alongside the road with the flat tire and I pull over and see if I can be assistant. Then I say, when I go to Africa to help out those people who are dying of AIDS in these AIDS villages, I'm going with the love of Jesus. I'm not going for any self-promotion. I'm going to promote the holy name of God and the righteous acts of God to people who are dying and need a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. God doesn't give us something to do that he's not willing to provide the empowerment for us to do. He only gives to us what he says, I will empower you to do. He doesn't give you an impossible task and then say, you're on your own. He gives you an impossible task and then he says, rely upon me and my Holy Spirit to produce that possible task to completion in your life with the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. Let's go back to Ephesians. Now I'm going to read the whole verse. You know, I'm backwards. You know I'm dyslexic, right? I've told you that a hundred times. I'm lysdexic. Okay? So most preachers, they start off by reading the whole verse and then they break it down into sections. I start backwards. I go with a little section at a time. Then I read the whole verse at the end. I don't know why I do that. I'm lysdexic. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. If you don't have this underlined in your, in your Bible. Get it a pen out. A pencil a marker, something, underline it, scratch it up, write all over it, etch it on paper, because when you etch it on paper, it will be etched on the tablet of your heart. Now, this is really important for, for us to understand that the only way that gra the grace you receive will be evident to those around you is as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I pass on to you what I receive from the Lord. If you are not passing grace onto those undeserving of grace, then I would, I would draw the conclusion that you've not really stepped into the fullness of the grace of God. 
Because when you are fully immersed into the grace of God, you will then be one of the most gracious people that walks the planet in our time. You will be so gracious and loving and caring and compassionate and tender-hearted. You will do everything you can to show the love of Jesus to those around you. You will bring the truth. Get this. I'm not saying eliminate the truth and have this sloppy candy thing called grace. I know that there's a whole different avenue we could have gone down this morning about people who have abused God's grace. We're not going to go down that trail today. And by the way, we'll just put one foot on it. When you abuse God's grace, then you answer to God, not to me, not to anybody else. That's God's grace, not anybody else's. But we're called to live in grace and to extend grace because we are recipients of the grace that is greater than anything. It's greater than all my sins. It's greater than all my disappointments. It's greater than my sorrow. It's greater than my pain. It's greater than my money. It's greater than my marriage. It's greater than my children. It's greater than my church. It's greater than my life. God's grace is greater than anything. And when we embrace it, we will live in the fullness of Christ. And do all he's commanded us to do with the joy in our heart. We're to walk in this good works that God's created for us long ago to do because of his grace. So, last week, I wanted you, I gave you an assignment. And I, some people were talking to me about it. And it was just amazing to hear them talking about it last week. Because we're talking about grace and we're talking about in this whole context of Philippians 2, 1 through 10, is that in the first part, the first three verses, Paul says to us, this is who you were. He doesn't say that's who you are. Because of the grace of God and the faith that we stepped in through Christ Jesus, that's who we were. But some of us don't even know, you know, we know each other a little bit in here, but I don't know who you were. Other people don't know who you were. And so this is what we want on one side. This is a, your, your story is, is concisely as you can write it. We've got two tables. We've got pens on each table. And what I want you to do is I want you to come up here and you, I want you to write, I was lonely or whatever. You write whatever it is that you were. Then on the next side, you write what I am. Mine is this. I didn't write it on here. I was lonely. And now I have a family. You are my family. I've been adopted into God's family. I am no longer a loner. I am no longer a loser. I am no longer uh, beat down and wore out. I am a child of God, dearly loved, saved by grace, an heir with Jesus. And I will enter into the kingdom of God and hear the words, good, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter to the joy of my Lord. That's me. That's who I am. Emmy's going to sing a song for us here in just a minute. And while she's singing that, whatever you were, this is what I was, I want you to come up to one of the two tables. And I want you to just take the cardboard. And you're going to have to work with each other and, and just 
write it out what I was and then flip it over and write out who I am. And then if there's people in line with you here, hold it up so they can read it. And then hold it to the rest of the people. And walk across and show everybody who you were. And then go back the other way and go, this is who I am. And you hold it up and you show us who you are in Jesus. Because that's the glory of his name right there. And that's what we're going to do. All right? Got your assignment? Let me pray for us. Father, so many times we get so confused about who we are and who you are. We get so messed up that we don't even understand ourselves what it means to be a child of God. But right here today, you have said, by your grace, we have been saved through Christ. It is nothing on our own doing. It's all about you, God. It's all about you, Jesus. And so our hearts are filled with thankfulness. Our hearts are overwhelmed with gratitude. And so this morning, help us as we come to share our story with the other people here that they would see the reality of you living in our lives and we would all praise your name from taking us from who we were to who we are. We praise you, Jesus, and we give you all honor, glory, because of your great work in our lives. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.